Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, and the word of the Lord reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author Mark Batterson once wrote of this text, Jesus didn't die to make us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It's storming the gates of hell with the light and the love of Jesus Christ. When I was about uh, in my late teens and my early 20s, I began to listen to, to talk radio rather than, than, than regular music stations. And it's funny, we live in a time where people don't even know what radio is anymore, I think, because with the iPods and Pandora, people can listen to whatever they want to um, anytime they want to. But there was actually a point where you actually had to like, you know, dial something in and, and then they played music amongst the commercials. So when I was a kid, I, I, you know, I really um, I began to listen to, to talk radio. And the reason why is because there were just a lot of adult men in my life that I respected deeply who would listen to talk radio. And, and they seemed to be very smart, and they seemed to be very well-informed, and they seemed to be articulate and educated, and I wanted to be just like that. And so I began to listen to talk radio as well. And one of my favorite radio programs was Paul Harvey's uh, Daily Update on the News. How many people remember Paul Harvey? All right, that just really pleases me that so many people remember him. But uh, if you're someone who does not know who Paul, Paul Harvey is, he was, he was a legend in the radio business. In fact, he was, he was at one time the most listened to uh, newscaster in the world. And he had this comforting, you know, charismatic voice. And he spoke like, like someone that you personally knew. It was like listening to your uncle or your grandfather or just somebody in your life who was wise and, and, and really um, intelligent. And, and it, was, it was somebody who was well-informed, but most importantly, it was like listening to somebody who actually cared about you. And I love to listen to his program every day, but my favorite part always was called The Rest of the Story. Uh, you see, Paul Harvey was this masterful storyteller and he used to talk about lots of things, but he would also talk about famous events in history that everyone really kind of had a handle on it or kind of knew something about. But he would always tell the story behind the story. He would talk about the part of the story that, that most people aren't familiar with or don't know. And one of my favorites, I mean, there were lots of them, but one of my favorites was when he talked about a woman who had deep compassion for her friend that, prevent, that, that she actually moved to prevent him from committing suicide. And it's a story that I think we would all resonate with because, because who wouldn't do that for their friend? Who wouldn't stand up and be there for their friend to help them through that time and to keep them from, from harming themselves? And so... I think we identify with the lady in this story and her willingness to save the, the life of her friend. But this friend was not a random person. This friend actually turned out to be a young Adolf Hitler just before he rose to power. She prevented Adolf Hitler from killing himself 
right? Before he was able to destroy the world. And so then he would, in classic Paul Harvey, you know, um, style, when your mind is swirling around like, wow, that just blew my mind. Then he would say, and now you know the rest of the story. And uh, I remember I would be so enthralled when I would listen. Um, it would frustrate my dad because he would capture and hold my, I was working for my dad at that time, and it would capture and hold my attention. And, I, you know, I'm supposed to be working. I'm standing there. I'm listening, like, intently waiting to hear the rest of the story. And more often than not, I would be, always be like, wow, that really I didn't know that that changes things. And I would marvel really at how the rest of the story would change my understanding of of something I already knew. It changed my perspective. You you see, a little context always changes, enhances how we understand things. And, And today's text is just like that. There is a story behind the story. And in fact, if there is a Bible verse that most Christians are familiar with, particularly when it comes to what it concerns the church, it's this one. And the reason why we're familiar is number one is because it's important. Right? Number two, this text here has been debated for centuries about what it means. But number three, this particular text is Jesus really giving us a lot of vivid, memorable imagery. There's a lot of vivid, memorable word pictures in this, in this text, like, like the rock on which the church is built. I mean, if there is an image that is common to the Bible, and if there's an image that's supposed to convey strength and, and stability, it's, it's a rock, you know, because, because Jesus is the rock. God is the rock in our fortress, right? Uh, you know, Jesus is going to build his church on the rock. But then you also have the image of Peter, you know, boldly declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what we saying this morning, Jesus Messiah. He was saying that he is the Son of God. And so this is a picture of really like a, like a turning point in history where, where his disciples really begin to realize the truth about him. But perhaps the most iconic word picture in this text is this, this, this image of the gates of hell. An image that really has captured the imaginations of, of people and artists you know, around the world for years. I mean, you can talk to anybody about the gates of hell, whether they're, they're a believer or not, and everybody has a picture. I, I know that I always have, right? I mean, when most of my Christian life, I always imagine these gigantic, like wrought iron imposing you know, gates with these tall points and spires and sharp edges, and maybe there's some some metalwork that 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 there's some like these really ugly and, and and lewd kind of like vulgar images in the structure. And this in my mind, this gate's kind of set in like this wall, this black wall made up of these like rustic stones that are pitch black. And on the other side of of this gate then is this dark and windy road that leads away solemnly into the darkness towards hell itself. That's really the picture. Every time I hear this, that's what I think. It's kind of what my mind goes to when I think about this text. Who, who else might have like an image similar to that when you think about the gates of hell? Okay. Now, maybe that's not you, but maybe then you think in the terms of like the Lord of the Rings. When you, when you watch the two towers, you see these big, imposing black gates that are armored, right? And, and they're, they're, they're ugly and, and, and rustic, and it takes these big, ugly monsters, you know, uh, to, to have enough power to, to open them and close them. Or maybe you think in terms of like Rodin's um, uh, sculpture, a famous, you know, work of art that's based on Dante's Inferno. Um, uh, this, this very famous image um, of, of an artist's interpretation of the gates of hell. Um, and it was, and its castings 
um, of this work of art have been made around the world, and it is displayed today in museums in Tokyo, in Paris, in Zurich, in Philadelphia, the, 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 the Museum of Art, and there's even a version of this at Stanford University. And this is an image that stays with people. It's a haunting kind of an image. Right? And, it's, and, and this is a word picture that's inspired this, and, and it leaves an impression on you. But, but the thing that I want you to understand is that when Jesus mentions the gates of hell, he's not really talking about wrought iron gates. He's not talking about armored black gates or, or this you know, haunting you know, you know, work of art with, with these images etched into them. When, when, when he mentions the gate of hell, he is talking about something related to a very real place in the world, a real place on earth called the gates of hell. Now, before you think, okay, Pastor Dunn lost his mind, okay? You need to hear me out, and you need to understand, you need to know the rest of the story. You see, what you have to understand is this isn't even something that I even knew until really recently. I had always kind of pictured what I described as, as the gates of hell, at least metaphorically. But after doing some homework and some background research, I have since discovered that there is a place known as the gates of hell in the region of Caesarea, of Caesarea uh, Philippi. It, it's, in, it's a real place within the borders of ancient Israel. You can Google it. In fact, I encourage you to do that. In fact, I might encourage you to Google it and maybe read your Bible too. Um, but, but, but the thing is, is it's, it's there in Israel, and as wild and as interesting as this may be, right? what's even more interesting is this is exactly the place that Jesus brings his disciples to have this conversation. This is the place he brings his disciples to have the conversation about who he is and about his plans for the church. Notice what it says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of uh, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, I have read this text over and over and over again for many years. I mean, the book of Matthew is something I'm very familiar with. I have read this text, you know, dozens and dozens of times. And as many times as I've read this, I have never stopped to ask, why is that detail even important? Right? Why did the author make a point to say that Jesus took his disciples to this place, Caesarea Philippi? I mean, really, this place is even out of the way. It's not even like something that people would really want to mention. It doesn't, it's not on the way to somewhere. It's actually kind of out of, out of anybody's way. And, and so it's not some, some place that you would pass through. So why does Jesus take the time to bring his disciples here to have this conversation? You see, one of the most important things that, that you need to learn about the Bible is that you need to learn to ask questions. If you want to really grow in your knowledge of the Bible, you have to ask questions like, why is that? Right? Why did they go there? Who's the one speaking? Who are they speaking to? Why did they phrase that that way? Why did they use that word order? What do they mean by that? If you really are going to grow in your faith and you're really going to learn how to grow in the Word of God, you really need to learn to slow down and ask questions because the truth is there's, there are very few unimportant details in the Bible, if at all. In fact, I would believe that every word and every phrase actually has a point to it. Every expression, every word order, even when you read the Bible, sometimes you see some of these things are indented, kind of funny. You know, there's, there's poetry in the Bible that if you don't realize it's what's happening, it affects the meaning. 
So it's important to ask questions. That's how you really grow in your understanding of the text, by looking closely at the details and asking. And so for many years I had read this text, and I never stopped to ask why. Why does the author, why does Matthew make this point to mention this particular geographical place in the text? And why did Jesus bring his disciples here? Because the truth is, there's actually a reason for it. And what we need to understand is that Matthew doesn't just tell us these things, so we'd be really, really good at Bible trivia. What's the first place that Jesus went to when he first mentioned the church? Right? That's not the reason why Matthew mentions it. He actually mentions it for a reason. It's important to the context of the Scripture. There's a reason Jesus picked this location. There's a reason why they're there. And that reason really affects how you fully understand and appreciate the meaning of the text. So the question is, why are they in Caesarea Philippi? And why is it even important? Well, what you need to know about this place is, is Caesarea Philippi was about 105 miles north of Jerusalem, and it was named after Herod Philip, which was one of the rulers of, of Jerusalem and Judah um, during the young uh, life of Jesus Christ, during his teenage years. And Herod actually was the one who built this city, which is situated at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon's actually the place where Jesus went and was transfigured. Right, so it's at the base of Mount Hermon, north of the Sea of Galilee. You can actually see it on the map and kind of see, kind of, it's really out of the way. It's not even near anywhere that they would want to go. But before it was called Caesarea Philippi, it was also known as Peneus, in honor of the Greek god Pan. I think we're pretty familiar with the half goat, half man, you know, you know, flute playing, you know, creature. He was the, the god of victory, and he used to stir up panic. In his, in his enemies. That's where we get the word panic. It's from, from pan. And so, so most of us are familiar with this hybrid creature. And what's interesting is, is, is that this region, right, in, in Caesarea Philippi, um, there's a, a giant rock, like a rock mountain, and at the bottom of it, there's a cave. And out of that cave, there used to flow a natural spring, which is one of the headwaters to the Jordan River And on this mountain, people would come and they worship this god of Pan and many other deities. In fact, you can see this, the carved niches on the stone there. That's where they would place their statues. And this was a place of pagan worship. But, but this practice didn't originate with, with the Greeks. It was a practice that even goes further back in history. In fact, even for centuries before that, people, even people of Israel, would worship the god of Baal there. Now, some people say God Baal or Baal, you know, take your pick. But, but this region was known for its, its, its worship of false gods. And those people who worshipped Baal believed that their god traveled to the underworld or to hell via water. And so when they saw a spring coming from the ground inside of this dark cave, they believed that was the passageway for their gods to travel between our world and the underworld. And this particular place became known as the gates of hell because that was where the gods would then descend into the underworld and come back. Right? And, 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 and the Greeks and Romans, they adopted the same idea, and a temple was built in front of that cave. The ruins of that, the, the, that temple still exist today. 
But people literally believed that this place was the gates of hell, and this was the entrance to the underworld. And this is where people would come, and they would worship their gods, and they would try to communicate with their gods and petition them to work on their behalf. Now, this particular city, Caesarea Philippi, was really known you know, for its strategic importance, and it was a very important economic region. But Caesarea Philippi was especially known for two things. Number one, its idol worship, it was world-renowned, and its promotion of deviant sexual behavior. Right? Those are the two things it was really known for. And the worst part is they were known for those things to be combined together a lot. In fact, the statue of Pan that they had on the wall was a very, very lewd picture. In fact, the descriptions I've read about that, I can't even talk about it. It was just so disturbing. Okay? And people, in their religious devotion to this, this deity and other gods, they would perform unspeakable public sexual acts just outside of the gates of hell, which really kind of seems like it rings true, right? Like they were doing these things outside the gates of hell. And they would do this not with just people, but also with goats. And I'm not trying to tell you something to, to, to make you disturbed this morning. What you have to understand is the picture of what's happening in this time. It's important for context. What's happening in this city is the most grotesque and vile behavior, right? Known to man happening right there regularly, right at the, at the foot of this rock near the gates of hell. And this is a place that is so debauched and so corrupt that observant Jews... They wouldn't even go near the city. They just wouldn't go there. They didn't want to have contact with the people there. They didn't want to touch them. They didn't want to have, have anything to do with the filth that took place there. And again, it wasn't like it was on the way to any place important to them. So they just avoided it altogether. But here in the text, we read Jesus takes his disciples here, which means we got to ask, why? Because you have to really think about the contrast to what's happening here. And, and if you don't if you can't really kind of wrap your head around that, just imagine this. Just imagine that, like, I decided I'm going to take our youth group on a trip. We're going to go out of state. We're going to have some fun. And we decide we're going to take our kids, a youth group, to Las Vegas. Right? And maybe we decide we're going to have a Bible study right there down to, I mean, at, at, on, the, on the strip, right, where everything's happening, where everything's all, you know, on display to be seen. And to make it worse, it's, we, we do that when it's in the middle of a pride parade for all the things that, that can be seen there. Okay, now you think about how out of place we would all be. Okay, That is how out of place these, these Jewish young men were. They felt completely out of place in this area. In fact, these were young men who grew up really honoring God and observant Jews. Right? And they had never, I mean, Peter still has struggled to eat you know, the wrong kinds of food even after Jesus was, was resurrected. Right? And they'd never seen anything like this and probably never even heard anything like this. But that is the place that Jesus brought them to have this talk with them about who he is and the future of his church. And I think one of the questions we need to think about and just let roll around in our minds as we explore this text together is why? <laughs> why did Jesus bring them here? And why is he having a discussion in that place. Because the fact is, Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. There's a reason that they're there. There's a reason why Jesus decided that was the time and that was the place to have this conversation. And so the text continues on as Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, 
but who do you say I am? Notice Jesus asks two questions here. What do, do people say? What do you say? What have you, what have you heard about me? And what do you believe about me is really kind of the question. These are really two important questions. What have you heard and what do you believe? And what you need to understand, and what we all need to understand, it's not what you have heard about Jesus that matters. It is what you believe about Jesus that matters. You see, we live in a country right now that's saturated with Bible culture. And everyone has heard about Jesus at least once. I mean, and if you don't believe me, just go out to lunch right when you go, go today, because you're probably going to do that. Um, and, and the first five people you meet, just ask them, have they heard about Jesus? And the odds are, they have. In fact, they probably heard about the Bible. They probably even heard about a few books of the Bible. They've definitely heard about church, and they've heard about Jesus, and maybe even the cross, and probably even heard about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But most of the people that you're going to run into, though they have heard about Jesus, are still unsaved. And the reason that is, is is it because of what they've heard. It's because of what they've believed. They've heard about Jesus dying for their sins. I think most people have heard that, that Jesus has died for your sins. But hearing that, hearing those words isn't enough. You have to believe it and put your trust in it and depend on it. That's the difference between knowledge and faith. Knowledge is hearing something. Faith is actually believing and receiving something. And what you need to understand is, is what I need, and what I need to understand is our Christian life. That doesn't flow out of what we hear. It flows actually out of what we believe. How you live your life as a, as a follower of Christ flows out of what you believe about God and your relationship to Him. For example, you've heard me teach over and over again about the sovereignty of God. I have a high view of God He is sovereign, he is in control, he is all-powerful, there's nothing outside of his will, there's nothing too big for him, he can do anything he wants to do. You have heard me say it, God is sovereign, but do we really believe that he's sovereign? And if you think you believe, then let me ask you another question. If everything that you prayed for last week were to come true, and all of your prayers were answered, what would really be different about the world? and about your life. Would world hunger be at an end? Or is that too big for God? Would world peace? What about all your friends and the people that you care about? Would they be saved? What about all the people that you know that are battling cancer who are at death's doorstep? Do you believe even now that God can heal them? What is your prayer life And what you pray tell you about what you believe about God. Do you really, really believe that he can do anything? Because if you're not praying for revival that shakes the world, if you're not praying for all the atheists in your life to be saved, if you're not praying that God can do the impossible in your life and the lives of other people around you, your view of God isn't really as big as you might think it is. Because God is sovereign, God is in the business of miracles. He is in the business of impossible. I have seen God take an addict and change their life in an instant and make them free of their addiction. I can't explain it except that it was God. I've seen God reconcile broken relationships that nobody, and I mean nobody, would ever even imagine in a thousand years could be fixed. I've witnessed God 
heal people. I even knew someone that, that had a stroke, and we, and, and, and we and witnessed them. Like, like They went to the hospital, and they said, you had a stroke. We know you had a stroke, but there's no evidence. I'm like, you are perfectly fine. Our God is powerful and can do anything he wants, but do you really believe that? Do you really pray like that's the truth? Your life and how you live reflects what you believe about God. What you believe is more important than what you have heard. And so when someone tells me that, that, you know, I believe in Jesus, I believe, you know, he died for my sins, but then I see that their life is in chaos and they walk in open, unrepentant sin, my, my thought is you... You probably know some things about Jesus. You, you, you probably have even heard some, some things. But I don't know if you really know him. Because, because if you really believe and you really love Jesus, when that happens, I've seen that life's change. It's impossible for it not to happen. You know, so don't tell me what you know. Tell me what you believe. So Jesus asks, who do people say the Son of Man is? And then he said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The thing that we need to understand is that everybody, even now, still kind of agrees that Jesus is cool. Like, that Jesus is somebody special. Even now, people don't believe in Jesus. They say, well, he was a good teacher, he was, he was a good man, he was a great example to us, he was a perfect person. Everybody believes there's something, you know, incredible about Jesus. But that's not what he was looking for. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? What do you really believe about me? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter gets it right. He gets right to the point and says, you're the Messiah. You are the one that we're waiting for. You are the one that we have been told about all of our lives. You are the one that God has promised Right? You are not simply a teacher or a preacher or some prophet. You are not just some wise man to be emulated. You are the real deal. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Let me ask you, what is it you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he's the real deal? Do you believe that he is what he claimed to be and he claimed to be very clearly to be God in the flesh? Or is Jesus for you someone that's just somebody special in history? Or is he just someone to look up to? Is he just some glorified man? So Peter rightly says, you're the Messiah. And notice Jesus' reply. He said, Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This right here, is really a big, important theological point that Jesus is making. Peter gets, he gets the answer right, but he doesn't get the answer right because someone told him the answer. He didn't get the answer right because he figured it out on his own because he was that smart. Right? Peter gets the answer right and he confesses who Jesus is because God himself has revealed it to him. And this is really important for us to understand as, as Christians and as we approach how we teach other people about Christ. Salvation is not the work of mankind. I know that sometimes it might feel like it, but it's not. Salvation is not the, not the result of a person learning facts. Yes, we need to talk about the facts, but that's not the, the, the results of learning facts. Salvation is not the result of 
persuasive arguments, though we need to use persuasive arguments. Salvation does not come from persuasive arguments. And salvation does not even come from a result that people are searching for God because Paul himself tells us that there is no one who understands. No one seeks for God. No one searches for God. Now, there are people that will disagree with me very readily, and they will say, well, I was looking for God. Right? I got friends that are searching for God. I mean, they got saved because they were searching for God. Let me, let me just tell you, okay, people don't actually search for God. They might be searching for a connection. Right? They might be searching for something bigger than themselves because they, they, they sense something. Right? They might be looking for self-fulfillment because everybody looks for that. They might be looking for, for, for the meaning to their life. They might even be looking for the purpose, why am I even here? They might even be looking for the, for the answers to the life's toughest questions, like why is life so hard and why is there so much evil? And they might even be longing in their heart for a place that they have never been, but they're not actually looking for God. Because the only way that you really look for the one true God is for that God to convict you of your sin and to help you see what the real problem is. To help you see what your real need is. Your real problem is the fact that you're an enemy of God. You were born a child of wrath. And, and, and the truth is, nobody wants to start there. Nobody begins their search there going, okay, I'm a bad person, so let, let me find God. No, people always start with the notion, I'm a good person, right? And I am worthy of redemption. I'm a good person, and if there's a loving God, then he will save me, because why? I'm a good person. This is the default paradigm of the entire world around us. This is, this is what, what's taught in schools. This is what's taught even in many seminaries, that, that people are basically good. That's why churches don't even want to talk about sin anymore. No one wants to start here. But the truth is, we have to start here. Otherwise, we will never seek what we're finding We have to start here. Everyone, every one of us, you and me, we began life selfish, self-absorbed, capable of deceit. You have all, including me, have lied. You have hurt people horribly. You have done things and said things and thought things that make you ashamed even now, that would even cause you to blush if, you, if they come to mind. And the thing is, no one had to teach you how to do that. Nobody had to teach you how to act that way. No one ever had to teach you how to be jealous. It just kind of comes naturally. No one ever had to teach you how to lash out in anger and rage when you didn't get your way. No one had to teach you how to lie. It was already there in you. You were born that way. But nobody wants to start here. Nobody wants to admit this. Nobody wants to begin with the fact that the greatest need that a person has is not information. The greatest need a person has is not more facts and more data. It's certainly not more money. And the greatest need you have is not even love. The greatest need that you have is not even acceptance. The greatest need that you have is forgiveness. You need to be saved. You need a savior. And that's why people don't, on their own, seek the one true God. They think they're good people deserving of the best that God has to offer. And, and, and here Jesus is in this city with his disciples in a place that proves 
beyond a shadow of a doubt that people are not born good and they're not intrinsically good and they are capable of some of the most vile and disgusting and unspeakable things. And it's in that context, it's in that place that Peter tells, that, that, that Jesus tells Peter, you didn't learn the truth about me right, on your own or from another person. God revealed it to you. Salvation is 100% the work of God. You see, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is the one that convicts us of our sin, exposing our need. He brings the gospel message to us through his word and through people proclaiming the word. Then he readies our heart to receive that word, and then he reveals to us the truth of that word. Because I know I heard the gospel many times when I was young, but it wasn't until God opened my eyes to the gospel that I actually really believed it. It's only then can we actually receive it by faith. Salvation is the result of God revealing the truth to someone and enabling them to believe that like Peter. Jesus makes sure that Peter understands that what he believes about him is God-given. And so Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now this text right here, this one here is actually the source of, of the great divide between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church that began about 500 years ago. Because this text here is, is, the, is the scripture that, that the Roman Catholic Church will use and has used for centuries to prove that the church in you need the office of the Pope. In fact, they say that Jesus here gives Peter and only Peter, a special commission to be the leader of the overall universal church, and it was through Peter, and this authority then was handed down from one pope to the next throughout history, all the way down to today's Pope Francis. And because of that, and because you're not given the gift of, 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 of being able to, to discern the scriptures, you need a high priest like the Pope to tell you what the scripture means. That you can read it, but you can't really know what it means outside of the church's traditions and the Pope. Now, the, the problem is, is that history doesn't even support this claim. History doesn't support it at all because there's no clear historical line of Popes that go all the way back to Peter. It's really kind of convoluted. I mean, there were there were people who claimed to be popes who were, in, who were like casting each other out right and left. Not to mention this idea of one person being in charge of the entire church besides Jesus wasn't an idea that was even developed until later in church history. And so church history didn't support this, and neither does the context of the scripture or the rest of scripture for that matter. So Peter is not the rock that Jesus was building his church on. In fact, Peter's name means tiny pebble. Right? And Jesus, when he says the rock, he's talking about a gigantic rock. The Greek is very emphatic to that point. And so Peter is not the rock. Well, if it's not Peter, then what is this rock that he's talking about? Well, again, I think we really need to just kind of look at the Scripture a little bit closer. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. You see, the rock that Jesus is talking about here is the truth of Peter's confession. 
the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, God incarnate. That is the rock on which he is going to build his church. And what you need to understand is, is not far from where they're standing in this moment where Jesus and his disciples stood when they're having this conversation was the rock on which the gates of hell was located. Right? On that rock, people set up their, and worshipped their false gods. On that rock, they devoted themselves to those idols. And so Jesus was saying in this particular context, I'm the one true God, not any of those other false gods that people worship with their profane activity. I'm the one true God. And people have built to them shrines and, and they built houses of worship for them on the face of that rock. But I'm going to build my own church. I'm going to build my own gathering of my people, and those people will worship me in spirit and in truth, and not on a rock like that, but they will worship me on the solid rock of the truth about me. The truth that God came to the earth not out of a spring, out of a mountain, but through a young virgin. The truth that God came and lived and he dwelt among us, walking in our shoes, identifying with our lives rather than just simply being distant, watching and making fun of us as we suffer and, and, and perform all kinds of inhuman acts in order to get God's attention. The truth that God is not some fickle, vain creature just above humanity who can really not fix anything, but he is the God, the almighty creator of the universe came into the earth and he can make all things right. Jesus has built his church on the truth that he is God. And because he is God, the truth is he is all, he is all you will ever need. Because your greatest problem is you are a sinner in need of salvation. And Jesus, God in the flesh, came to earth, lived the perfect life, and died in your place so you could have it. And you don't have to perform some complicated rituals. You don't have to lower yourself to, to some, some pagan worship. You don't even have to go to some obscure place like a mountain. All you need to do is put your trust in Christ and his atoning work on the cross and you're saved. That's the rock on which Jesus built his church. He built his church on Peter's confession, and he continues to build the church on our confession. Every person who confesses Christ becomes a member, a part of a stone or a block in the growing church. See, Christ didn't just build his church once. He is building his church. And every confession grows the church. Now, why does Jesus wait? to say these things in a place like Caesarea Philippi. Well, I know that this rock metaphor has a connection to this particular location. There's a reason why they're standing next to a big rock. Right? Because, because the thing is, is if Jesus had said this in like a place like Jerusalem, maybe the apostles might have missed an important point. Maybe so would we. You see, when it comes to when we become a Christian, obviously something changes in us, and we have this tendency to want to begin to slowly isolate ourselves from the influences of the world. We want to hang out with other Christians, which, that's good. You should want that. 
We have this tendency to want to, to, to walk in personal holiness. We want to be pleasing to God. That's good. We should, we should want that. Right? We, we have this tendency to want to separate ourselves from the evil that's in the world. Yes, that's healthy. We should, we should desire that. But we begin to actually shut out the world and all of its influences, and we begin to come very inward. And there's something in us that wants to isolate ourselves from the world. We want to inoculate ourselves. We want to insulate ourselves from the world. And it's really kind of a natural feeling. I mean, you taste and see that God is good, and you want more of him and less of that other stuff out there. And one of our, our new favorite songs is, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. If you look upon his wonderful face, the things of this world become strangely dim. I mean, that's just what the truth is. But, but, but our tendency is to go too far. That's actually what the Amish are. That's, that's really what happens when you have religious fundamentalism, is there's this tendency to go too far. The Amish are a full realization of our tendency to withdraw from the world at large and simply only be concerned about our own lives and our own families and our walk with God and everything else can just go to hell. We have this tendency to want to be safe. But that is not what Jesus wanted. He wanted his disciples and his church to be in the world. Not of the world, to be in the world. And, and to make the point, he brings them to the most debased and disgusting place around, and he tells them, I am going to build my church, and I'm going to build it on the truth of your confession, and, and I'm not just going to build it in some safe place. I'm going to build it in places like this too, in cities like this too. I might even build my church on that rock. You see, Jesus did not want his followers hiding from evil. He, did, he didn't want his followers to run away when, when things were ugly and evil from the world came around them. He wanted them, he wanted his followers to go out into the world, into the most hostile, hostile places, and spread the hope of Christ and to continue to build the church. He didn't want his followers to be on the defense against the enemy. He wanted them to go on the offense. He wanted them to take the fight to the enemy. He wanted his disciples and his church to be on the attack against the enemy. That's why he says what he says next. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this is loaded, theologically speaking. But let me just touch on a couple of points here. First of all, I mean, we really just need to understand what gates are. Gates are defensive mechanisms. They keep people in, they keep people out. That's really what they're for. So they're not offensive weapons. The enemy does not employ gates you know, in, the, in his offense against us. They're, they're defensive structures. And notice that Jesus says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And so this is an important word picture that tells us, right, that in order for a gate to prevail or not to prevail, something means it's, something's coming against it. Something is attacking it. Something is trying to destroy it. Jesus is, is painting a picture of his church, not as a group of people who are sitting back waiting defensively, hiding, waiting for the enemy to come, but instead it's a picture of a church gathering together to go out into the world and to rip the gates of hell off its hinges. That's the picture. Pastor Mark Batterson writes, Jesus didn't die to make us safe. He died to make us dangerous. 
Faithfulness isn't holding the fort. It's storming the gates of hell with the light and love of Jesus. See, Jesus brings his disciples to this place to set for them the context for their mission. The mission of the church. Because later he's going to tell his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of where? All the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And what he's telling them is, don't just go where you're comfortable. Don't just go where people are accepting you and they like you. Go to the cities filled with sexual immorality. Go to the communities filled with false religion and idolatry. Go to the towns where there's corruption and justice is failing. Go to the places of deep suffering. Go to the worst places to the world. In fact, go all the way to the gates of hell and preach the gospel. That is the mission of the church. We're to go on the offense and take the fight to the enemy in his own territory. Now, this idea of, of the gates of hell is, is really, it's very symbolic. Obviously, it's connected to a literal place, but, but there's a lot of symbolism here. And I think that we can connect a few ideas to this that help us to understand the, the, the scope of our mission and what the enemy territory really is. And, and the first one is, is death. Because in ancient cultures, the gates of hell was the entrance from, from our world to the underworld. So the, the gates of hell literally represented death. Second, it symbolizes idolatry and false religion. That was, that's what was practiced outside of the gates of hell for centuries. False religion and idolatry. But also, it symbolizes the power of government. Because not only at this location did they worship other gods, they worshipped Caesar. Because Romans had a very strict rule. You can have your religion, you can believe whatever you want to believe, as long as... You venerate Caesar above all other things. As long as you bow to him, as long as you pray to him, as long as you sacrifice to him, you can believe whatever you want to, but Caesar is God. And so this place became not only a place of religion, but a political, a political force. There was political worship here. And finally, the gates of hell represent enemy territory. We're to attack the enemy even in its most fortified positions and strongholds. Now, when, now, given this symbolism and, and what this means, right? Christ himself has built his church on a rock of the truth of our confession and that he is God in the flesh. And he has decreed that the church go out and take the fight to the enemy. And what he's saying is nothing, nothing, nothing will ever be able to stand against it. Nothing will overcome the church. Not even death. Even though we might die. Even though that things might change and people will seek to take away our lives for what we believe, the church will continue. Death has never once prevailed against the church and it never will. And neither will false religions or idolatry. <clears throat> it doesn't matter how many converts that, that Jehovah's Witnesses make or the people at the, uh, uh, the Mormon church make. It doesn't matter how many converts Islam makes. It doesn't matter how much influence Eastern... Uh, uh, mythology has on our world. Those things will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell do, will not prevail against the church, which means that all false religions will fail against the church. And the same goes for the government. The government will not prevail against the church. Governments have tried throughout the centuries, and they have failed. 
And the more they try, the faster the church grows. In China, <clears throat> the government has absolutely become secularized, and they are diametrically opposed to all religion. It doesn't matter what it is. Their demands for their citizens is that they pledge their love and their allegiance and their loyalty to the state. First and foremost, above all other things, there can be no other god besides the Chinese government. And the Chinese government is tearing down churches, and it is, it is disbanding small groups. It's jailing pastors. I mean, the church is being persecuted, but the church in China is one of the fastest-growing churches in the entire world. So the government will not prevail against the church. Not even our own government will prevail against the church. And neither will the devil. And all of his forces and all the ugly things that he can bring to bear he will not prevail against the church. The fact is that he has already lost. Christ defeated him once and for all at the cross of Calvary. Sin and death, the tools of the enemy, have been defeated when Jesus rose victoriously from the grave. Our foe has been vanquished. He has been defeated. Christ has already won. And because of that, then, the mission that we are called to is not a futile mission it's a mission of victory, total victory. The very worst part of life has been defeated. The very worst problem that you were ever going to face has been solved for you. Christ died to pay a debt that you couldn't pay, to live a life that you couldn't live, to give you a righteousness that you didn't earn, and the wrath of God against you is no more. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been forgiven. We have been redeemed. We are no longer the enemies of God, but we have been reconciled back to him, and we have been adopted into his own family to which we can cry out, Abba, Father. We can call him Daddy. The hell that awaited us no longer has a hold on us. We are victorious because Christ defeated the enemy and we can go confidently and boldly into the territory of the enemy proclaiming the truth of Christ knowing we're going to win. So let's talk about what this means for First Baptist Church and, and you. For 80 years, this church has faithfully reached out to the community and the world at large to share the hope of Christ. This church has raised up and sent out missionaries and supported missionaries. This church has raised up church planters. It has raised up ministers and preachers and pastors and people who minister the gospel. And the members of this church have personally went into the world and witnessed to and shared the hope of Christ with those that they come in contact with. And the results are lives have changed. Families have been restored. Grace has been given. Broken hearts have been have been mended. People have broken free from the bondage to, to addiction, but most importantly, souls have been saved over the 80 years that this church has existed. But today, brothers and sisters, we find ourselves in very troubling times because the world is changing. We can see it. Things are becoming darker. Secularism is on the rise. All forms of of deviancy are becoming the norm. I mean, there are things that people just celebrate today that we wouldn't even talk about 15 years ago. And we live in a world that's saturated with materialism and pornography and misinformation. And even our little community, our little tight-knit town has been suffering and is worse in many respects. Drug use and addiction is on the rise. 
Violence is on the rise. Crime is commonplace. People don't feel safe in their homes. People say all the time, this is not the Boron I grew up in. This is not the community that I used to know. Not to mention, the state of California is becoming increasingly hostile to the to family values and, and, and the Christian faith itself, making it harder for, for us to live here. And because of that, there's this temptation that we all face, the temptation to withdraw, to fall back, to hide from the evil around us, the temptation to run away. I mean, every time something happens in California that we don't like, we go, yeah, I'm moving out of here. We're leaving. The temptation is just simply to concede that things are bad and are going to get worse. And the temptation is to say, you know what, what's the point? I'm just going to take care of me and mine. Right? I love Jesus. I love my church family. What more do I need? So I'm just going to stand here and I'm going to rest locked up in the comfort of my own faith. That's why Jesus took his disciples to this place. That's the answer. One of the most disturbing places on the earth. He took them there to tell them the future of the church, the future that the church is not to withdraw. It is not to run and hide. The future of the church is to go forward and advance. So let me close by confidently and boldly proclaim to you First Baptist Church will not be in the business of playing defense. We will not hide. We will not cower. We will not ride out the storm. We will not hold the ground. We are going to advance. We are going to move forward. We're going to get into the darkest places of the world and we're going to find the enemy and we're going to fight him wherever we find him and we will, we will boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to every creature we come in contact with and every person in this community will hear the gospel over and over and over again. And we will not be ashamed and we will not be afraid and we will not be timid and we will not be intimidated. And we will go out in force to the strongholds of the enemy, the strongholds of addiction, the strongholds of apathy, the strongholds of divorce, the strongholds of false religions that are, that are sending your friends and my friends and neighbors and even some of our families to hell right now. We will use the weapons that God has given us. We will become masters of the weapons that God has entrusted to us. We will become known as people of the book. We will be people known how to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We will be known as people who know how to use the Word against the enemy in every and all circumstances. And we will become people known as a church of prayer warriors, people who come together and pray their hearts out, earnestly seeking God, people who boldly come before God in the throne of grace and make petitions for God to do the impossible in our lives and the lives of other people. People who pray big, audacious prayers. People who pray for revival and peace and for the salvation of our friends and our neighbors. People who are fervent and pray all the time, constantly. People who are not afraid to be seen on their knees, crying out to their God. That is who we're going to be. First Baptist Church is a loving community of Christ followers. 
And we are on fire and passionately pursuing Jesus wherever he leads us, even into the darkest of territories. And we are deeply connected. We are not just friends. We are not just neighbors. We are family. We are family in a way that nobody else in the world will understand. We are deeply connected to each other, and we are completely and totally sold out to share the hope of Jesus Christ with our community and all of the world. That is who we are and what we're going to be. And I invite you to come along with us. Let me pray for you. Father, I beg you now to raise up a people in this church who are sold completely out for you, who are not afraid, who are not timid, who understand the battle is already won and who will go out and share the hope of Christ and who understand that the Christian life is not just meant for us to just huddle together hoping that the storm will pass, but that we will get into the fight. And yes, Lord, we will get bloody. And yes, Lord, we will get nicked up. And yes, Lord, people even around the world today are still dying for the gospel, Lord. Let us not be afraid. Let us not be timid. Let us remember that Jesus took his disciples to the gates of hell and then told them he's going to build his church. And so build your church in Boron, in North Edwards, in California City, in California and around the world. And use us, Lord God, as willing instruments in your hand. Give us the power to use the weapons you've given us and give us the boldness, Lord God, to declare with our lips that Jesus is king and we'll follow him all the days of our lives. Thank you for that. I pray your blessing on this church for 80 years more on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.